Hello, I am Professor Edith Brown Weiss from Georgetown University, and it's my pleasure to be delivering another lecture in this mini series on international environmental law. In this lecture, we consider legal approaches to controlling pollution and to conserving natural resources, <clears throat> and then we look at the conservation and use of freshwater resources briefly. I want to highlight only a few approaches because of their specificity to international environmental law. Framework agreements have been key in international environmental law. The framework agreement sets out objectives and often provides for cooperation in research, sharing of information, monitoring, and similar efforts. After the United Nations Environment Program was established, states then negotiated under its auspices framework agreements for regional seas, with the initial one being for the Mediterranean. The framework agreement was always accompanied by one or more protocols, which contained specific obligations for the parties. A state has to join at least one of the protocols when it becomes a party to the regional seas framework agreement. There are now 14 regional seas agreements and 36 protocols to the agreements. The first regional seas agreement, the Barcelona Convention for the Protection of the Mediterranean Sea, which was amended and now is re renamed the Convention for the Protection of the Marine Environment and the Coastal Region of the Mediterranean, has seven protocols attached to it. The last protocol is on integrated coastal zone management in the Mediterranean. The advantage of first concluding a framework agreement, followed by one or more protocols, is that states can set the stage for cooperation and then directly address new problems as they emerge within the context of the framework agreement. A framework agreement has also, has also been used to limit transboundary air pollution. The 1997 United Nations Economic Commission for Europe Convention on Long-Range Transboundary Air Pollution is a framework agreement. Parties have subsequently negotiated eight protocols, six of which address specific pollutants. The Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Ozone Layer in 1985 is one of the most notable framework agreements. Subsequently, states negotiated the Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the ozone layer. They did that in 1987. And that placed specific targets and timetables on specific chemicals depleting the ozone layer. The protocol has had five amendments. States must join the Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Ozone Layer if they are to become a party to the Montreal Protocol. But the protocol is a separate agreement which they must join in order to become a party to it. The provisions of the framework agreement, the Vienna Convention, such as those for dispute resolution, resolution are available to parties to the Montreal Protocol. When the World Health Organization negotiated its first and as yet only international agreement, it adopted the approach of a framework convention 
to control tobacco. States have subsequently adopted one protocol, a protocol to limit illicit trade in tobacco products, which they concluded in 2013. The framework agreement approach puts the focus on the objective of an agreement and contains provisions that establish cooperation among the parties. The specific detailed constraints, which can be a subject of controversy, can come later. Next, we turn to a second approach, and that is the use of targets and timetables to control pollution. And we turn to these methods to control atmospheric pollution. The classic approach, then, is to set forth obligatory targets and timetables for sp specific pollutants. A target and timetable has three elements. A target date by which emissions of a specific pollutant are to be reduced or eliminated. The percentage or other amount by which the pollutant has to be reduced. And the baseline from which the reduction is to be measured. The Long Range Transboundary Air Pollution 1985 Protocol on Reducing Sulfur Emissions or Their Transboundary Fluxes provides a good example to analyze. The protocol provided that parties had to reduce their national annual sulfur emissions or their transboundary fluxes by at least 30% as soon as possible and at the latest by 1993, the target date using 1980 levels as the basis for the calculation of the reductions. Note that there are three parts to target and timetable that can be subject to negotiation. First, the 1980 level baseline. Second, the target date of 1993. And third, the percentage reduction of at least 30%. This particular formulation was very controversial because it did not let countries account for the decrease in emissions which they may have already achieved. A subsequent protocol on sulfur reductions took this into account by providing flexibility on the selection of the baseline. The Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer also uses targets and timetables as does the Kyoto Protocol for Annex B countries for controlling greenhouse gas emissions. Targets and timetables can be a very useful approach because they are specific, they can be monitored, they can be applied to all parties with flexibility possible for each of the three elements. And now we turn to a third approach which is the economic instruments or market-based mechanisms for controlling pollution. Another approach to controlling air pollutant emissions, and particularly for greenhouse gas emissions, is to use economic instruments or market-based mechanisms. The stated objective is to reduce emissions in the most efficient manner. The Kyoto Protocol to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, 
exemplifies several economic or market-based approaches. In Article 4, Annex 1 states, within an area, and specifically within the European Union, although that is not mentioned specifically, those states are permitted to aggregate their emissions to determine an aggregate emission for the whole area, which should then meet the combined targeted limits and timetables for all the countries in that area. It is like putting an umbrella over in an area and looking at the aggregate emissions to see whether they meet the combined limits specified in the individual target and timetables. This means that a country that has reduced its greenhouse gas emissions more than its required amount can essentially provide the excess allowance to a country that needs more amount of emissions in order to meet its specified target. A second economic approach or market mechanism is joint implementation. Under Article 6 of the Kyoto Protocol, the Annex 1 countries may meet their emission reduction requirements by reducing emissions in another Annex 1 country and getting credit for doing so. Article 12 provides for a clean development mechanism by which Annex 1 countries can obtain credit for reducing emissions in non-Annex 1 countries. And finally, Article 17 permits the Annex B countries to the Kyoto Protocol, which are subject to emission reductions, to engage in emissions trading among themselves. The Paris 2015 Agreement in Article 6 permits market-based mechanisms, and the recent conference of the party in Glasgow elaborated upon Article 6. Now, it may be useful to clarify emissions trading, since it is relevant not only internationally, but within some countries and regions. Emissions trading is a system that allocates, on some basis, rights to emit a given sub substance among various sources. Any entity that has allocated such a right can use, either use it or transfer it to another entity. The entity that is able to reduce emissions below the level of its allocation thus has a valuable commodity which can be sold to someone else, presumably sold to another entity that cannot reduce emissions to the level of its allocation without incurring a very high cost. The notion there is that the entity that can achieve reduced emissions at the least cost will have an incentive to do so. Emissions trading is sometimes referred to as cap-and-trade because once a cap on emissions has been set, the parties can engage in 
trading emissions. For an emissions trading program to work, the participants need easy access to good information about the emission credit market and a system to monitor fraud. Emissions trading does not address equity issues, which are linked to the initial allocation of emission credits and to various other concerns. We have been focusing then on specific approaches to controlling, to controlling pollution in international environmental law. And now we turn to the conservation of natural resources. There are three distinct legal approaches to conserving natural resources. In situ conservation, ex situ conservation, which means conservation elsewhere, and conservation of particular species of fauna or flora. We examine only the first two of these. The Convention on Biological Diversity covers both in situ and ex situ conservation. After repeating Principle 21 of the Stockholm Declaration of, on the Human Environment, which it does in Article 3 of the Convention on Biological Diversity, the Convention calls for states' party to develop, quote, national strategies, plans, or programs for the conservation and sustainable use of biological diversity or to adapt existing ones to do so. Article 8 then articulates in detail the obligations for in-situ conservation. It is quite comprehensive in its call for states to conserve biological diversity itself within the country. The, the convention itself is fundamental to achieving sustainable development. The Biodiversity Convention has two protocols attached to it. The Cartagena Protocol on Biosafety, which governs the movement of living modified organisms, or LMOs, and the Nagoya Protocol on Access to Genetic Resources and the Fair and Equitable Sharing of Benefits, which is critical for indigenous peoples within the country. In the latter, the focus is on conserving biological diversity in situ. This approach of conserving biological diversity and natural resources in situ is reflected in many other agreements or international programs. Both the World Heritage Convention and the Convention on Wetlands focus on identifying sites within the country of special international interest and developing plans for conserving each. The World Heritage Convention maintains a list of World Heritage sites, both cultural and natural and mixed sites. In addition, we have a world network of biosphere reserves under UNESCO. And there are currently 727 biosphere reserves in 131 countries. Again, the orientation is toward conservation in situ in the countries. 
but excess, excess to conservation of biological diversity is also growing. And it's growing as we become more concerned with the conservation of genetic resources, including for food security. The International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture uh, provides rules of the road. According to a food, UN Food and Agriculture study, there are over 1,750 gene banks today located on all continents. As another approach to conserving natural resources, I want to turn to the approach of measures to control trade in, in, in dangerous substances, which would be uh, hazardous, for example, or to protect fauna and flora. This approach is to restrict trade in controlled items to other countries. For example, the Basel Convention on the Transboundary Movement of Hazardous Wastes restricts trade in waste by requiring the consent of the importing and transit company countries for shipment of the wastes. The Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species restricts trade by requiring both export and import permits for species of fauna and flora that are listed in Annex 1 as highly endangered. Now, in some cases in these agreements, trade is restricted between parties and non-parties to the agreement in order to make a more effective agreement in order to avoid weak links. This is an important way to protect against the weak links or pollution havens because they can defeat the effectiveness of the agreement as discussed in my first lecture. But it is useful to examine three agreements in connection with provisions that limit trade between parties and non-parties in order to identify important differences between them. Under the Montreal Protocol controlling chemicals that deplete the ozone layer, no party may export a controlled substance to any state that's not a party to the protocol or to import a product from them. In addition, if a country exports a controlled substance to a non-party, it can't deduct that amount in calculating its own level of consumption of the controlled substance for purposes of complying with its target and timetable for phasing down the chemical. There's an important exception, however, namely that if a meeting of the parties determines that a non-state party is in full compliance with the control measures under the protocol and has submitted data to that effect, the state's party may decide to permit imports from that state even though it is not a party. Note that this is a very difficult hurdle to meet and, in fact, has not been invoked or needed to be invoked. The Basel Convention on Transboundary Movement of Hazardous Waste also bans export to and import from a non-party to the agreement, again, to increase its effectiveness. Nonetheless, it provides an exception for agreements between a party and non-party if the arrangement does not, quote, 
derogate from the environmentally sound management of hazardous wastes as required by the Convention, unquote. Note that it requires an arrangement to be in place between the party and the non-party. The United States, for example, has, has signed but not ratified the Basel Agreement, but has bilateral arrangements with Mexico and Canada, among others, that are a party to the agreement. The Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species also bars trade with states that are not party to the Convention. But Article 10 provides that trade may ensue if there is, quote, comparable documentation issued by the competent authorities in that state which substantially conforms with the requirements of the present convention for permits and certificates. This is a loose standard, for the exporting country itself can determine whether the importing country meets the criteria. Now, in a previous lecture, we discussed the relationship briefly between international environmental law and international trade law. The provisions to the exception of the ban on trade with non-parties in the three conventions that I've discussed above and in other international agreements that contain such a provision are structured so as to meet any challenge under the General Agreement on Tariff and Trades on Limiting Exports and Imports. Hence, they have provisions for providing for a circumstance in which trade could occur despite the state being a non-party. And now I want to turn to my final topic, which is fresh water resource conservation. Fresh water is a scarce resource. It constitutes only 2.5% of all the water in the world. And of this 2.5%, 30.1% is groundwater. Only 0.4% is surface water and atmosphere. And of this 0.4%, lakes account for 67.5%. Wetlands for 8.5% and rivers only 1.5%. Water law has focused on the last. If we turn and ask the question, well, what about the use of fresh water, rivers, lakes, groundwater, we find that agriculture accounts for 68%. Domestic and industrial use is 19%, and power, 10%. And if we ask the further question, what about the consumptive use of water, fresh water, meaning that which is not returns to its source but consumed, agriculture accounts for 93% of water consumption, and domestic and industrial uses, the remaining 7%. Now let's turn to hydrology for a moment, because there are certain things that are important to be aware of if we are going to conserve freshwater resources. And the first is that ground and surface water are linked in river basin systems. 
groundwater, including any pollutants in groundwater, normally flows to the river. Groundwater aquifers, which are not a stream, it's water in the spaces between the rocks, are often rechargeable. But land use affects the viability of the recharge area of an aquifer. To be sure, there are some aquifers that are non-rechargeable or are no longer rechargeable, that are not linked then to rivers. And there are some ancient aquifers with fossil water, large ones, such as the one underlying North Africa, for example. The pollution of lakes and of rivers comes from different sources. It comes from direct discharges into the lakes or rivers. It also comes from groundwater pollutants seeping into the lakes or rivers, from land use pollutants, and importantly may come from pollutants carried by air and deposited in the lakes. Thus, we can speak of a basin ecosystem. Moreover, a difference in pollutants, toxics and those measured by biological oxygen demand, may require different treatment. For example, for toxics, it may take 100 years for a lake to flush out the toxic chemicals, as for Lake Superior between Canada and the United States. And in addition, climate change will affect fresh water, the amounts of precipitation, the timing of the precipitation, rising sea levels causing saltwater intrusion into rivers and aquifers, and demanding more fresh water to keep on, this, on the river to keep the saltwater back, the speeding up of fundamental hydrological cycles, and increase in the number of and severity of storms. What I want to do today is to focus on conservation approaches then to conserving fresh water and to do so in two areas, one in controlling pollution and the second in controlling demand for fresh water. Now, international water law has focused on supply, on allocation and use. There are well over 2,000 international multilateral and bilateral water agreements. The one that is most always referenced is the UN Convention on the Law of Non-Navigational Uses of International Watercourses, which is now in effect, and it codifies two basic rules, equitable and reasonable use of water and the obligation not to cause significant harm. I think these may be regarded as reflecting customary international law. The Convention articulates these general principles in Articles 5, 6, and 7. Article 5 provides that watercourse states shall use in international watercourses an equitable, should use it in an equitable and reasonable manner. They should do so, quote, with a view to attaining optimal and sustainable utilization thereof and benefits therefrom, close quote. Further, they shall participate in the use, development, and protection of an international watercourse in a, quote, equitable and reasonable manner, unquote. Article 6 then sets forth the seven factors and circumstances relevant to determining equitable and reasonable use. 
but the convention does not assign weight to any or priority to any given factor. Article 7 then contains the obligation not to cause significant harm, which means that watercourse states must take all appropriate measures to prevent the causing of significant harm to other watercourse states. And it does provide that if significant harm is caused, that it is possible at some point to, and appropriate to discuss the question of compensation. Article 8 then sets forth the general obligation to cooperate to attain optimal, optimal utilization and adequate protection of an international watercourse. And finally, Article 10 requires special regard for, quote, vital human needs, unquote. Note that the obligation not to cause significant harm does not take priority over equitable and reasonable use. It is an obligation with reasonable, equitable, and reasonable use and certainly contributes uh, to a finding. The only article in the convention, though, that addresses pollution is Article 21 which states that watercourse states shall individually and where appropriate jointly prevent, reduce, and control the pollution of an international watercourse that may cause significant harm to other watercourse states or to the environment, including harm to human health and safety. The convention is notable, though, because it includes a rather innovative Article 22 that obligates states to, quote, take all measures, unquote, to prevent the introduction of alien or new species into an international watercourse, which may detrimentally affect the ecosystem of the watercourse. There are now 37 parties to this convention. There is at least one other important international agreement that addresses water pollution. And that's the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe Convention on the Protection and Use of Transboundary Watercourses and International Lakes, which provides much greater detail on the measures that are to be taken to control pollution of such bodies. It specifically sets forth guiding principles of the precautionary principle, the polluter pays principle, and a principle of intergenerational equity. The convention has 46 states parties. Since 2016, all states that are members of the United Nations can now join the convention, and five states from Africa have since acceded to it. Many of the more recent international water agreements in effect today do contain a provision for controlling pollution. The Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement between Canada and the United States, adopts the basin ecosystem approach to encompass all sources of pollution to the lakes, including that from groundwater discharging into the lakes. And that turns us to perhaps our biggest challenge, that of addressing groundwater and specifically groundwater pollution. Remember that groundwater accounts for over 30% of our freshwater resources. And for this, we, re we return again to the hydrology 
of international watercourses and lakes. The UN Convention on International Watercourses defines a watercourse as, quote, a system of surface waters and groundwaters, constituting by virtue of their physical relationship, a unitary whole and normally flowing into a common uh, terminus. The inclusion of groundwater was at one point controversial within the agreement. While the current formulation may extend to pollution of groundwater, it does not explicitly include the recharge areas of groundwater, which is a land use issue, or other activities that may affect the quality of groundwater. Yet these are critical for protecting groundwater. The International Law Commission produced draft articles on transboundary aquifers, which recognized the recharge zone of aquifers and the discharge zones, and obligated states in undertaking activities that could affect the aquifer or the aquifer system, quote, to take all appropriate measures to prevent the causing of significant harm, unquote. The United Nations has not adopted that draft. The 2005 report of the United Nations on Water for Life includes a comprehensive overview of groundwater and international law, including treaties that cover, in some cases, groundwater quality. For purposes of this lecture, we emphasize that in conserving water quality, the basin ecosystem approach, which encompasses all sources of pollution, and the attention to groundwater quality and the consideration of all activities affecting groundwater are important approaches to conserving water quality. And finally, I turn to the demand for fresh water. The focus of international water law has been on issues related to the supply of water, to its allocation, and use. As we face a water crisis, we may need to turn to containing the demand for water while recognizing and fulfilling the basic human needs for water. Remember that agriculture accounts for 93% of consumptive use, industrial uses and domestic uses for 7%. This means that one approach for conserving water resources is to develop more efficient ways of extracting, conveying, and using water resources. This is especially critical for use of water for agriculture. It also means addressing questions of virtual water transfer in the products that are produced and transferred, particularly from areas with scarce water supplies. This approach of looking at demand for water will again raise linkages to international trade and investment law and to other areas of public international law. It does offer one approach to conserving water resources. As we face new challenges in using and conserving our environment and our natural resources, we will undoubtedly explore still more and new approaches 
for doing so. And these two will become part of international environmental law. Thank you.